If you have your Bibles, would you turn with me to Luke chapter 5? We've been walking through the, the Gospel of Luke together, and we're going to continue on doing so in chapter 5, and we're going to be putting our attention into verses 12 through 16. And while you're turning there, um, if you were with us last week, I had kind of given um, a bit of a life story of what was going on in my house, which was potty talk. I don't know if you guys remember, if you were here with us last week, I was talking about the um, resolve that my children were going through to not talk potty talk anymore, which is the humor of the bathroom. And I want you to know that because I shared that on Sunday and they heard, it has been a very big talking point all this week of why I would share such a thing <laughs> with so many people out in public. Particularly with Tavia, and so I wanted to, to readdress it, not in any uh, way that she did anything wrong, or she just had some clarifications that she wanted me to present to you this morning, which, <laughs> some of which I am not allowed to share because she said I am not allowed to share these things, but one thing she did say I could share was that I have noticed a 90% decrease of potty talk this week. <laughs> since I shared it with you guys last, last week. So it was a lot of fun. A lot of fun talking, and I definitely don't want to be one of those uh, pastor dads who use their kids as examples <laughs> of, of anything, but I can share some good news when it happens. Luke chapter 5, verses 12 through 16. I hope you turn there, and would you pray with me before we begin? God, we come to you. We come to you and ask that you would open our minds Open our ears, open our hearts and our eyes this morning as we seek to know the Savior, as we seek to know Jesus, and we seek to better understand just how Jesus meets our deepest needs. This morning as we come together, as so many churches are throughout the world, we pray that you would let Jesus shine brightly. Let our hope be risen to remind ourselves of the beauty of Jesus and all that he is and all that he has done for us. We love you in Christ's name. Amen. So if you've turned there by now, and I wanted to share a little, um, little funny advertisement with you. There's, there's this laundry detergent agency that was trying to figure out how they could sell their laundry detergent to more people. So they were going around and they were asking different people what they wanted in their laundry, right? Not just for it to be clean, but what does it mean for their laundry to be clean? So they'd ask around and they came up with this statement, this mantra, which is that they started promoting to people, which is get your whites whiter and your brights brighter, right? We've probably all kind of heard that same kind of mantra. And so this is what the market research was telling all of the laundry detergent people to say is get your, you know, lead with, get your whites whiter and your brights brighter. And it's true that, that people wanted their clothes to be clean. It's true that the laundry detergent asked consumers what they wanted from their detergent, right? But no one asked consumers why they wanted their clothes clean. No one really thought of asking that. 
So later, another group came in because they were noticing that no sales were kind of rising or anything. Nothing, nothing was happening after they were making out this claim of our laundry detergent makes your whites brighter and your brights brighter. So they brought in another people where they just studied people doing laundry, which is weird. But they did it anyway because they really wanted to know. So they just watched all these people do laundry. And what they noticed is something pretty fascinating. They observed that when people took out their laundry of the dryer, no one held it up to the light to see if it was whiter or see if it was brighter. What do you think people did? They would smell it. <laughs> they would take it out of the dryer and they would smell the laundry. That's the first thing, hands down, that everyone did. And one kind of social commentator, he describes it and he says, this was an amazing discovery because feeling clean was more important to people than being clean. It was a feeling. And it leads to a, a question for us to consider of what does it mean to be clean? In every culture, cleanliness is held as an inward and outward marker of social involvement. Yet, humanity, it still faces the reality that we can't be clean based on our own merit. It is a continual process of cleanliness. It is an endless pursuit of being clean. And every single culture wrestles with this. So we're left, because we can't clean based off of our own merits, we, can't, we have to continually do that, where there's never a permanent state of cleanliness, we're left with two opposing illusions. The first illusion says that you are clean, and so there's nothing wrong with you. Don't even worry about it. But then you have another illusion that says you are so singularly unclean, you are beyond hope. And you and you alone are the only one who is this unclean. And our culture wants us to go in either direction. There's nothing wrong with you. Don't worry about it. You are so bad that you are all by yourself and no one is as unclean as you are. This morning, in order to address those two opposing illusions that find themselves within the lie of sin, we get comfort from Luke chapter 5. Because in Luke chapter 5, we discover how our deepest needs to be clean, to know ourselves, to know our purpose, even to know our limits, are met by a willing Savior who displays and shows us and heals for us all of these things that we so desperately need. In Luke chapter 5, we're come to this story that's probably one of the more dramatic of Luke's gospel so far, and it's when a leper that has reached full deformity comes to Jesus and he asks to be clean. So if you're with me, if you've Got Luke, Luke chapter 5 in front of you. I want to give you a little bit of context before we're about to go into this, just to make sure that we're all on the same page. And 
The first is that in Israel, a person with leprosy is summed up by historians as a dead man walking. Leviticus 13, verses 45 through 46, it describes lepers as this. The person who has a case of a serious skin disease is to have his clothes torn and his hair hanging loose. And he must cover his mouth and cry out, unclean, unclean. And he will remain unclean as long as he has the disease. He is unclean. He must live alone in a place outside the camp. It's a grim fate of isolation for a leper. And when a leper, well, I say, it's dramatic when we read that in the scriptures. But what we also want to read is we want to read how significant it is when a leper is healed. So, if a leper is healed, Leviticus 14, it says that the priest would go outside of the camp to see if he was actually healed or not. Then, still outside of the camp, two birds would be presented, right? And these two birds would be sacrificed. One, or two birds would be taken and one would be sacrificed in this clear water while the other bird would be dipped in the blood of the bird that just died and that blood would be sprinkled upon the leper. It's already pretty strange and dramatic, but that's how a lot of these Levitical laws are. They're quite dramatic and strange, but they're filled with meaning and they're filled with a lot of purpose into each and every single step. So while the priest is outside of the camp, meeting with this person who has been considered dead, who's been considered an outsider forever, this process of healing, the birds would come, and then that bird that was dipped in the blood is now this symbol of reconciliation, of the sinner to God rejoining the household of faith, and so that bird is released to fly out. And upon com confirming that this man has actually been, or this person has been healed of leprosy, the person then would wash all of their clothes, bathe, shave their body, and re-enter the camp. And then there would be a party for seven days with his family and with the entire community, which is really cool, which is, in some ways, we would say, Somewhat appropriate, as this person's probably been alone for however many years. But on the seventh day, this is when it gets really amazing. On the seventh day, the man would go back, and then he would shave his, his hair, he would shave his eyebrows, everything, be completely bald, bathe again. So then, like a newborn, he would officially re-enter into society as a new existence, as a new creation. Everything about a leper signified to people death. But when someone was healed from that, from leprosy, from something so dramatic, there was equal reason and purpose to celebrate a newness of life, just like they would celebrate a newborn. Then after that, so after they've been brought in, then, only then, would the priest 
bring that person into the temple and then officially, after this whole process, officially declare that that person was now clean. And then the leper could, the once leper, now new man, if you will, could make sacrifices to God in the temple as he was. And a part of that was they would take the blood of the sacrifice and they would dip it on his thumb and they would dip it on his toe and then, and then smear it on his ear. I know, strange, but the purpose of that was to see how this new existence, this new person was going to be living out their mission to God and what God has asked of them. They would be going in service. They had a new purpose. Their purpose was, in a sense, reestablished because they were now living back within God's people. It's dramatic. But for the man in our story that, I wanted, that we're going to be drawing your attention to, this was only a dream, never to be fulfilled. Because this man, Luke says, had leprosy all over him. Remember, Luke's a physician, and so he's writing this from a, a medical standpoint. This means that the leprosy had taken over everything. The disease had already run its course. He really was a dead man walking with nothing to live for, with no one to live with, completely alone until he sees Jesus. This is verse 12. Would you read with me? While he, Jesus, was in one of the towns, a man was there who had leprosy all over him. He saw Jesus, fell face down, and begged him, Lord, if you are willing, you can make me clean. Now Matthew tells us, in the Gospel of Matthew, that this moment happened just as Jesus was descending from the Sermon on the Mount. So in the Sermon on the Mount, you know that there was if you're familiar with that, that part of Jesus' ministry, there was a large crowd that was gathered. And just picture yourself in that crowd after hearing Jesus finish his sermons with the words still ringing in your ear, blessed are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of God, followed by a distant background refrain of unclean, unclean. And immediately, the tenor of the crowd has changed. When people are so connected to Jesus, all of a sudden they hear, unclean, unclean, and immediately everyone's alerted, and no one wants to be there. And just like a rippling wave, everyone parts so that they don't get contaminated by this leper who slowly and comes and approaches Jesus. This is the dramatic moment of this story, guys. Jesus was likely the only one who looked at him. Jesus was the only one who gave this man attention. When everyone is listening to Jesus' words, these two illusions that we talk about, these two lies, come forefront to the center of everyone's mind where they say, I don't want to be like that. And so they depart. And Jesus is left 
and the man comes up with nothing left to give, right? Nothing to live for. But knowing our need is the first and fundamental qualification for coming to Jesus. Knowing our need is the first and fundamental qualification to come to Jesus. This man not only said that he was unclean, he knew he was unclean. A beggar with nothing in him commendable to God is the posture to move Jesus towards giving grace. When Jesus says, blessed are the poor in spirit, he's saying, blessed are those with a posture of dependence, of understanding, recognizing not only what they're saying, but knowing that they're unclean. And Jesus' healing touch doesn't come from a posture of casual acknowledgement or from someone's like wishful thinking. Knowing our need must come from a deep reality of our condition. We need to be healed and we need to be saved. Now, I believe the Holy Spirit's power within stories like this is to show us and to demonstrate for us that the Holy Spirit gives a, an awakening of the person's spirit towards faith in bringing clarity to our need of Jesus, to our need of being healed, of our need of being clean, because sin is so deceptive that even upon someone having faith in Christ, that there can be a process of recognizing and coming to grips and coming to the realization that maybe my life is a little bit darker than I, was, than I kind of would care to admit or maybe I'd care to think about, right? As the Spirit teaches us and grows us towards faith in Christ, we begin to start to see with greater reality and greater clarity, rather, the separation of what our sin, of what we do willingly away from Jesus. But at the same time, the Holy Spirit ministers to us and awakens us by showing that Jesus does not wince when we make these self-discoveries. Someone like I talked last week, Jesus is unnerved by when we come to the reality of our sin. Just like Peter, when he would lay down, he would say, depart from me because I am a wicked man, Jesus. And yet Jesus says, that's exactly how I can use you because my power is made greatest in your weakness. When our reality of our sin becomes clear to us, Jesus is most powerful. Because then, grace is most magnified. Separation from God is physical and spiritual. Sin can permeate both. Sin does permeate both. But the gospel declares, despite ourselves, and our condition, that no one is beyond God's love 
and redemption. Knowing our Savior is to know His willingness to heal and to save. So let's, let's read Jesus' response in verse 13 and 14. Reaching out His hand, Jesus touched Him, saying, I am willing, be made clean. And immediately the leprosy left him. Then he ordered him to tell no one. But go and show yourself to the priest and offer what Moses commanded for your cleansing as a testimony to them. You're that crowd. You just ran away from this leper. You heard the words, unclean, unclean. And then you see before your eyes in front of everyone, this man becoming a new, given new life, given new existence. What was unclean is now clean. Completely saved, completely healed. Everyone is in awe, and you hear Jesus tell him to go to the temple. One commentator, he described this interaction as being this correspondence of full of harmony. This is what Jesus is, and this is what's represented when it comes to us coming to Jesus with our sin, coming to Jesus with our weakness. When we come to him, we can say, you can cleanse me. And Jesus will quickly respond with, I can indeed. You alone can do it. And Jesus will always respond with, I will. The will joins the power. The if of the leper, if you would, is replaced by the be, the declarative be from Jesus. You have new life. Be healed. And notice, too, when I gave that background of the leper, the reason why I gave you that background is because I wanted you to listen, I want you to see this part. Because what does Jesus do? Does Jesus say, you are healed. Now, go, go back away from everyone, get outside of the camp, and then a priest will come to you, and he will bring the, the sacrificial offering, he will, and then he will declare you clean, and then you're going to go through the week Right? You're going to spend the week, you're going to shave everything. You're going to go party, and then you're going to go back to the temple after the seventh day. Did Jesus do any of that? No, he didn't. Because, friends, this is what Jesus means by Matthew 5. I don't think I came to abolish the law or the prophets, but I came not to abolish, but to fulfill. Jesus alone fulfilled every law that this man had to meet. Jesus fulfilled it in that moment. For what would take this man a week or so to go through all of these moments, to go through all of these rituals, to go through the law, Jesus can do in an instant. That's the wonder of Jesus. Jesus fulfills the law for us, something that we could never do on our own, but it goes even deeper than that. 
Because not only did Jesus just declare to him that he is willing that you are made clean, Jesus touched him. And Jesus didn't lightly touch him. It's not like a gentle thing. It's not a thing where he's like trying to kind of keep his distance at the same time. And, and honestly, touch, the word touch in our English doesn't even do justice to this moment. Because the, the phrase here, actually, it doesn't mean touch. Like you, you touch the top of a jellyfish, right? You touch something gross. You can touch that and then you can kind of wipe your hands off. That's what touch means to us. What this word is, is take hold of. Embrace. Take hold of without the intention of letting go. Like a little kid, like squeezing a parent very hard, or a parent squeezing their child back. Jesus took hold of this man when he still had leprosy. He didn't have to get his act together or get it right. He didn't have to go and make apologies to a bunch of people. He didn't have to do all of these things before. Jesus took hold of him, and then he became a new man. Jesus took hold, with, took hold of him with the same tenacity that he takes hold of us. Jesus takes hold of sinners. If there's anything to write down, Jesus takes hold of sinners. We can so easily think that Jesus, because he did everything for us, that even when we come to, to him, that there's a sense of, of his holiness that doesn't want that wants to be removed from us. But there is in this passage is just one of those examples of how intimately how quickly how lovingly Jesus comes to those who are in their worst possible state. And it's in that we get to see the love of Christ. It's in that moment that we get to see how the poor in spirit are blessed because they receive the kingdom of God, meaning they get to feel the pulse of Jesus. They get to feel, they get to be taken hold of by God and lifted up out of the darkness, out of the sins that they've been in and brought into new life. This Christ, Jesus' pure hands on, and kind of being descriptive here, on a rotting leper is a parable, friends, of the incarnation of, and the cross. Jesus took on flesh, became sin for us, and gave us his purity. When Jesus takes hold of us, that is what happens. 2 Corinthians 5, 21, He made the one who did not know sin to be sin for us, so that in Him we might become 
the righteousness of God. So what do we do with that? What do we do with that? We go and we share it. That is, if we're something to follow with this, this new man, there's something to follow if you identify as a Christian who has been in that moment or who has experienced in Jesus love and grace and forgiveness in your life. And then as you've been growing in your faith through the Holy Spirit, he's awakening you to the reality of sin, to where you are, to where Jesus is. All of it encompasses not something to take and keep to yourself, but it's something to go and share. The counter, the counter to those two illusions that I brought up, that nothing's wrong with you or that you are so bad, you are the only one, the way that you fight that is you tell people the good news. You share Jesus. You share the good news because there people get to see how someone's deepest needs are met by a willing and loving Savior. Verse 15, it says, But the news about him spread even more, and large crowds would come together to hear him and to be healed of their sicknesses. I remember there's this, there's a, when this past summer we took our kids to an amusement park. And at the amusement park, it was like, so it's been a journey of amusement parks with our kids because I will say I've traumatized my kids by accident with the different rides and stuff numerous times. But this one was a win. And as a parent, I was feeling really good about this whole experience. And it was because in every, everything, I knew that this, I knew amusement parks were scary. I had taken them on too many rides. They'd been, you know, shooken up too many a times. And as they came in, they were walking in, we had like one good experience. And then we had another good experience. And we had another good experience. And then by the end, it was like anything that would happen within them, within this, this moment at the amusement park, they were willing to share with everyone. They were willing just to tell anybody about all the good things that they had. The people, the concession people that were working there who were like totally desensitized to any joy of children, you know, because they're just doing all of this. My, my kids were trying to be like, do you know how amazing this place is? You know, I just rode on this ride and it changed my life, <laughs> you know? And they're like, and they're like, look at this ball. I just won this. And they're trying to convince these people, and they're like sharing all of these good things that have happened to them. And, you know, honestly, whatever their response was, I was sitting there really excited, not just because their traumatic events are probably hopefully turning and we can have more fun at amusement parks, but because I got to see that good things are worth sharing. And what's even deeper than that is that things that were once a marker of fear were now a marker of joy. Something that my kids were so afraid of now became the very entry point to share with others that something that they've overcome, something joyful within it. Friends, each of us has a history each of us has a place in our lives 
because it's very difficult to share and very difficult to process through. That the Bible defines as dark. There's dark. Each of us has that. And it's there in those dark places that Jesus comes in to take hold and to shine and to let the gospel shine bright and grow. And in that moment now, a place of fear, a place of, of shame, a place of darkness, now becomes the foothold that we have to share with others who are in that same place, to give them good news. The gospel is good news. That is, it's knowing our purpose is to know that we, with the Savior, that we get to walk with Jesus and we are given new life so that in any other example, any area in our lives that seems too far gone for Jesus, we get to say to that far gone place, to that illusion, to that lie, Jesus has taken hold of me. And he will not let me go. And it leads us to the next reality, which is the gospel, that good news, is not stagnant. The gospel multiplies. With your good news that you've had in your life, with your new purpose that you have had as a believer, if you believe that Jesus has changed you and called you, to live this new purpose, then we need to keep in the forefront of our minds 1 Timothy 1, verse 15. Jesus Christ came into the world to save sinners. Just like us. Our purpose is wrapped in His. Jesus came to save sinners to draw them towards Himself, to take hold of them, reconciling them to God, and then we, as once sinners, now made new, go out and tell others of what Christ has done for us, drawing them into relationship, into reconciliation with God through the Holy Spirit. Our purpose is wrapped up in the story of God. And our value, then, is not determined by our own efforts, it's not determined by what we would place a, a physical value on, a physical marker on, but what our, our Heavenly Father says about us. A Christian's purpose is wrapped in our identity. And as we're looking at this, as we're looking at verses 15, we're looking about people knowing their purpose, the, the news about Jesus spreading our passage takes a turn because what our American culture would come to conclude with knowing our purpose is to say, okay, then there's no time for rest. We know our purpose. We know our mission. Let's get at it. Let's keep going, right? Let's work. Let's do our thing. And yet, what does verse 16 tell us and challenge us with? Verse 16 Yet he, Jesus, often withdrew 
to deserted places and prayed. What? What? What are you talking about? Knowing our purpose, knowing that Jesus has met our deepest needs, beginning to be awakened with the Spirit and know our Savior, is to also know our limits. Knowing our limits. A fundamental marker of missional progress is recovery and recalibration. Let me say that again. A fundamental marker of missional progress is recovery and recalibration. Rest. But I like this, I like these words of recovery and recalibration because it it's this dynamic definition of what Jesus was doing. Jesus wasn't just taking a nap, though I'm sure rest was a part of that. But Jesus was recovering. Jesus was recalibrating so that he did not lose himself, but remained dependent on the Father's will and the Father's mission to carry him forward. Think about Think about exercise, right? Any legitimate coach is going to tell you that growth, like improvement, physical improvement, doesn't actually come from the exercise itself, right? Actually, you're kind of injuring yourself when you exercise, right? You're kind of doing all these micro tears and all sorts of stuff. Your growth comes in from your recovery, right? Your growth comes in when you have an adequate amount of rest, of recalibration, of nourishment, of sitting and letting your body heal. Knowing your limits is knowing our need to recover. The danger is if we, if we live or if you continue to live in a place of, I know my purpose, I know what I'm supposed to do, I know what Jesus calls me to do, I'm going to go do it, and you keep doing that, and you keep going without any kind of resolve to rest, without any kind of um, emphasis or any kind of motivation to recover, what happens is that those two lies, those two illusions you begin to start to travel towards one of them. Because the farther we go, the more fatigued we become. So we've got to take Jesus' example here to know when it's, in, when it's necessary to recover and also to know what it means to recalibrate. I love Ecclesiastes 4, verse 6, when it says, Better one handful with rest than two handfuls with effort and pursuit of the wind. What a powerful verse. Let me read it again. Better one handful with rest than two handfuls with effort and pursuit of the wind. Do you see without the proper perspective, all of our efforts turn to a pursuit of the wind. It's fleeing. But friends, recalibration comes in and keeps us 
from doing this keeps our purpose aligned with God's, keeps ourselves aligned with Christ so that we're not going off, we're not doing this, we're not doing that, we're not running ourselves to the point where we, we don't know where we are anymore. Recalibration through prayer keeps us in a state of dependency, not self-resilience. This is how Jesus maintained his ministry during these moments. There's these, even these moments of temptation, if you will. It wasn't just when Jesus went to the, um, to the wilderness to be, to be tempted by Satan. That wasn't necessarily, that was the marker of temptation for Jesus. But there were also little moments that Jesus clearly rebuked and fought off. One of them is in John 6 when it says Jesus real, when Jesus realized that this crowd, they were coming to him to take him by force to make him king, he withdrew again to the mountain by himself. As we discover that Jesus meets all of our deepest needs, the pressures that we receive of performance, of self-resilience, and determination, they all melt away because we come back to the center and we remember that Jesus met our deepest needs when we were in our weakest state. Let go of the performance. Let go of the self-resilient attitude when it comes to the strategies that you're going to have in your life. It's, strategies are good, but apart from Jesus, apart from your mission and from your identity as a Christian, they will diverge. We need Christ, we need Jesus to help us stay centered. Recovery, recalibration are the ways through prayer are the reminders for us that we too are lepers saved by grace through faith. And Jesus alone is our Savior doing the work that we are unable to do for ourselves. So that in those moments, after your long pursuits, after your exhaustion, you come to a point and you feel unclean, remember that Jesus has taken hold of you and he has pronounced you clean. Amen, church? Let's pray. Jesus, we thank you for what you have done for us, for what we could not do ourselves. When you went to the cross, when you willingly took on sin for us, you gave us your purity. You gave us cleanliness to where now the laws that we would be following, the laws that we would, that are unattainable to get to, are all fulfilled within you.
And we thank you for that. And God, I pray that this story of the leper would just show us how moved you are to, with compassion to those who are lost in sin, who are lost in themselves, and how moved to compassion you are to those Christians who have misaligned priorities and how you bring us to the center. You call us to recover and you call us to be with you, to remember that you have made us clean, that you've taken hold of us, and that you have made us new. And within that, God, we say thank you and we love you. In Christ's name, church said, amen.